We gather today as the people of God. The people of God and the people in general do not exist apart from the very Word of God. And the, the people of God don't exist apart from the Word of God. And the Word of God is both to inform and instruct all that we do as believers. And so each week we turn to it that we might hear from the Lord in His Word. We've been working through Genesis for several weeks now. And we are in Genesis chapter 9. We'll do verses 1 through 17 this morning. And as you turn there and we turn our, our attention and our hearts to the Word, I encourage you guys to pray this prayer along with me here up on the slides. Let's pray this prayer together. Prepare our hearts, O God, to hear Your Word and obey Your will through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. What comes into your mind when you think about God? What are the first thoughts that, that, that come running to you when I ask, what, who is God and, and what do you think about when you think about God? Well, one author said this, that what comes into our minds, whatever has come into your mind, when we think about God is the most important thing about us. From A.W. Tozer in a, a book we'd commend to you called Knowledge of the Holy. I think that he is right that this is vital to who we are. And not only functions to, to fill our thoughts with certain things about God, but that we know drives our activity and how we live our lives. So who we think God is, whether we think that that is something that we can understand or not understand, or whatever, whatever our thoughts are, will we'll drive... How we live. Now our view of God is informed by all sorts of things. It's informed by our past. What we've been taught. What we've experienced. What we've been through in our lives. It's informed by our culture inevitably. Like, How did we get brought up? Like, What is the, the, the cultural mood? And what do they teach and, and talk about? How do they live out religion and, and thoughts about God? What do they say about theology? It's informed by what we see. That is, we, we form our worldviews based on, on kind of how we're experiencing things and how we see things and perceive them to be based on just our own thoughts. And we could go on and on and on with what informs this knowledge about God. And so what we have, it seems, is, is kind of like all these thoughts about God, this kind of this jarled up ball of, of yarn. The uh, thoughts about God coming from all over the place, just kind of all tangled together. And so what we need is truth. And so what we do each week is we turn to the truth. And the Scripture. And, and what we're trying to do is help untangle that kind of ball of yarn by, by just starting to pull a thread out and looking at these things and seeing, is, is this true? Does this line up with the Word of God? And so in Genesis chapter 9, and up to this point, we've seen much about God. What His character is. And Genesis 9 gives us even more. You see, in Genesis chapter 9, we've just finished the flood. Noah's off the, the ark now, and we have this reestablished creation, as it were. It's a cleansed creation. And in this reestablished creation, God shows His gracious character. He shows it in His concern for His creation, and He shows it in His covenant with His creation. That is, I think that we're going to see that, once again, we're building on who, who God is. And God in this reestablished creation is definitely displayed and revealed as... This God of grace. 
And this means for us as humans, as humanity together, that we can have and indeed are invited into relationship with this God. That is that we are to draw near to Him because of who He is. And He is gracious. And so, Genesis chapter 9, after the flood, God remembered Noah. He was faithful to His promises. He delivered Noah. And Noah got off the boat, worshipped God. And God made a promise to Noah. And He continues on with that promise in in Genesis chapter 9, starting in verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, Genesis 9.1 is, is creation language all over again. It might have sounded familiar because it is familiar. It's already been written before. Like this is a reestablished creation with, in, in a sense, a new Adam, that is Noah, and, and there's another blessing given. So this is, this is kind of the tone setter for what's going to keep going forward. We saw that a little bit last week, and, and God continues that tone as He did with Adam. Then He creates him and He says, Be fruitful and multiply. This is setting the tone for what's going to take place in this new reestablished creation that God has cleansed. Now this word blessed is a tough one for us to kind of grab hold of. We have all sorts of thoughts that surround that word blessed. But but what blessed is, is it's God's good enabling. So if He says to be fruitful, God is, by His goodness, enabling that to happen. God is providing for, in this blessing, it's, it's Him providing for good. It's, it's the opposite of, of cursing. I think we understand that a lot more clearly. And so just think of what's the opposite of, of curse. That would be to be blessed. And blessed across both the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's this. It's a relational word. It, it happens in relationship. And that is when God is saying to Noah that he wants him to, he blesses him. He still wants to establish relationship with Noah. He still desires relationship with Noah. And not with Noah, but this, this new Adam, this, this kind of one who stands in the place of all humanity. God wants to continue on with relationship with humanity. That is, he still desires to provide for the good of his creation. For the good of humanity. And it's a reminder, even from verse 1 here, this reestablished creation, that God is gracious. We've seen what man is like, and yet God still desires to provide for the good of His creation. There's brokenness still. Next week, at the end of chapter 9, Noah shows and displays his brokenness very evidently. There's brokenness. Chapter 10, we're going to go next chapter over. You know, like we're, we're going to see the nations, and then we get to, to, to the Tower of Babel. Chapter 11, like brokenness is still just rampant. But there's still blessing. God hasn't pulled back. He still blesses. And at the reestablishment of creation, here's what God wants. He wants relationship with humanity. He wants to provide for the good of humanity. He wants the good of of human flourishing. This is what God is still continuing. And and the question is, why? Why would you want this? Had, Had humanity shown potential? I don't think that's the reason. And they've shown some potential, but it's potential for evil, not for good. And potential to run to really evil places really, really quickly. So that can't be why. And even after this cleansing, we've seen that humanity continues in sin. That's a preview of the next several and every chapter of the Bible since this flood. So why, why bless and why tell them to be fruitful? It's because it's who God is. He's a gracious God. This is... Who He is by, by nature. It's not conjured up. He doesn't have to like, alright, i, I got to figure out a way to be gracious to humanity. No, this is just who He is. Now the overflow of who He is, He blesses. I like what one author says when he said, By its very nature, God's grace 
finds the only reason for its existence is in God Himself. That is, that this blessing that He gives to Noah and humanity isn't earned, isn't something that they showed potential and God wanted to get behind it and pick up the momentum there. No, no, this is just based upon God's gracious nature, His character, who He is, and out of who He is, He blesses Noah and tells him to be fruitful and multiply. And for sinful Israelites that would have read this, who failed the test like Adam failed the test, this would have been a helpful word. For... Us, this is good news because we've sinned, right? We've brought, we, have, we haven't shown the right potential. We've shown potential toward evil. We haven't lived up to the standard of God. We haven't reflected back to Him His holiness, and yet He still desires relationship with us. God is gracious. Even after we have blown it, He is gracious and wants to establish with this blessing relationship with us, wanting our good. God is more gracious than we know. And so when we think about what comes to our mind when we think about God, was, is, is God's grace a, a piece of that for you? And His gracious care, is that a piece of what you would have thought? The reality is, is that sometimes we're, we're, we're taught maybe, or we think naturally, especially after we read stuff like the flood in the Old Testament, that, that the Old Testament God, if we are to divide God, which you shouldn't do, is, is a little bit more mean. A little bit more strict. And then we get this nice and loving Jesus in the New Testament. And the reality is, is that God is God. And, and old and new, He remains the same. He never changes. Not shifting. God is gracious. This is who he, and he shows it here right after the flood. And even during the flood, we've seen the grace of God. And so it leads one author to say, once again, that the Bible is an extended narrative of God's grace from start and to finish. That is, that when we think about God, we must think about and be informed by who He is. And He is a gracious God from start to finish. There's never a shifting in that and in His character in all of the Scripture. We see this in so many ways. There's, there's what we call common grace. The grace that is common to all humanity. No matter where they live, no matter where they're from, no matter what background, it doesn't matter. There are certain things that they get to experience just by the grace of God. That life and breath and, and food and, and creation. All these things we could point to and just say, this is not dependent upon how you behave, how you act, or anything at all. It's just because God is gracious to us. We see that God is gracious and then He speaks to His creation. He doesn't just... Throw it out there and say, good luck. He speaks into it. In other words, God doesn't just want to create and let us figure it out. He creates and interprets for us so that we might know Him. Beyond that, He sends His Son. That while we were still sinners, He comes to, to die for us. That is God's grace to us. He adopts us by His grace. He sends us by His grace. He finishes the work. He starts by His grace. I mean, we could go on and on and on about the gracious character of God. And in His grace, He blesses humanity. Adam and Eve, here we see Noah's blessed and his family in order to continue on the earth. And so God's showing His gracious character. And He shows His gracious care for His creation in this kind of renewed creation that He has before us in chapter 9. So He turns His words now to animals. Chapter 9, verse 2. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. And into your hand they are delivered. 
And every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Maybe the, the arrogance, the, the animals were getting a little arrogant. I, I don't know, that, that could be a potential there. They were getting a little too comfortable with where they were. And so God puts a fear in them that, that changes the relationship between animals and men. And whatever is going on is, is that humans are going to have dominion over animals, as Adam was to have, and can use them all as food. Verse 4 says, but you should not eat flesh with its blood in it. That is its life, that is its blood in this animal. So there's, there's a restriction. You can use it all for food, but not with blood in it. Now what's going on here? We have a new Adam, that is Noah, in this renewed creation, and he's given another command to not eat. And so there's all sorts of creation language that God is using here as he's writing out this, this passage. Even the life of animals is, is to be something that is valued in this verse 4 is what we see. So there's, there's another command not to eat because the life of animals is of value to God as their creator. We see this in Proverbs chapter 12 verse 10. That whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast. That is, there's a value placed on creatures as creatures. As God has given them value. He cares for all of His creation, including the animals. And so there are certain things that you do and do not do. You, you have regard for the life of your beast. He, God puts value on this life. And I think that that's, that's what He's driving at because He says, Blood. Why, why would blood be important? Is it just because it's disgusting or it carries germs or all that? Why is blood important that we refrain from it or that God tells them to refrain from it? Well, blood equals life. And so when God is talking about blood, it's not just some sort of like sanitation reason. He, he's working to show that life itself is valuable. And that's a reflection not just of blood and life, but this is a reflection of God. God gave that life. That's why it's valuable. That's why it matters, because the Creator has given life. And so God is giving humanity, I think, in, in even this short passage, this short verse, an appreciation for life, animal life, and an appreciation, I think, for blood that we'll see carried out throughout the Scripture as we start to see that when you have to take life for sin or like that, it's a big deal. So God is starting to groom that in humanity as well. But it goes beyond that. This is a respect, not just for animal life, but to the giver of life itself. And if the animals are to be valued this highly, then how much more the crown of God's creation? Humanity. Human life. We see this in verse 5. It says, And for your lifeblood I will acquire a reckoning. From every beast I will acquire it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will acquire a reckoning. For the life of man. And whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. I want to read that again and I think a a more helpful translation for us. Because I'm reading that and I'm thinking like that sounds confusing. And so here's I think a more helpful translation of that for us today. It says, I will require the blood of anyone who takes another person's life. And if a wild animal kills a person, it must die. And anyone who murders a fellow human must die. If anyone takes a human life, that person's life will also be taken by human hands. For God made human beings in His own image. Now animal life is is valued here by God. But how much more so those who bear God's image. Like that is vital to all that we say about life. Human life. We, we are different from the animal. There's a huge separation because we bear the image of God. And here's why that matters. It's not because we are intricately like 
intrinsically valuable in and of ourselves because we bear God's image. And who do we think God is? And the higher view of God we have, the higher view of humanity we will have because humanity, all humans, no matter where you're from or, or what gender you they all bear the image of God. And that is key and foundational to the Scripture. So much so that there are sanctions on humans in dealing with human life. So if an animal kills, it's to die. Exodus 21 says this, that when an ox gores a man or woman to death, the ox shall be stoned. We're all for that. Bring justice to it. When I get stung by a wasp, that wasp is going down. It's like it just became personal. You could fly around and I didn't notice you were there and I'm not trying to hunt you down, but if you sting me, now you're being hunted. And I will hold dominion over you if at all possible. I think that's faithful to Exodus 21. But this is carried over to humanity, right? And the same, same goes for when a man takes another man's life. There's a required reckoning by God. And when he says, from his fellow man, that, that is literally brother. And so what's going on here is that he's addressing humanity as this extended family together. All image bearers. We are the image bearing family. So one author said this, that God holds the human family society responsible to administer retribution when a human life is taken wantonly. And this accounting principle is based on the fact that humans, men and women, are made in the image of God. That's why it's different than when an animal gores a man or woman. Because we're talking about image bearers. And an attack on an image bearer is is an attack not just on a person, but on the very image of God. So God takes this very seriously. This is why images mentioned again that humanity has this unique status and is uniquely and extremely valuable to their Creator, whose image they bear. And so in here, this may not have been part of what you were thinking on your application, but you, you shouldn't be a cannibal. Foundational verse for that here. But why? 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 I mean, you could say lots of things there, right? It's disgusting, it's horrible, it's inhumane. Why should you not be a cannibal? Someone's going to tweet this, like, this is what we're talking about on Sunday. Why you shouldn't be a cannibal, right? Here's why, because we're image bearers, Right? You can't, you, how do you hold that up? There's lots of reasons why you could be. You could give lots of good reasons. But here's why we say no. That's outlawed by the Scripture because we're image bearers. The same goes for murder. Murder is denounced. Why? Because we are image bearers. And being in the image of God is foundational to these things in all of human life. Why do we speak out about abortion? Or why do we care about widows and orphans? Because God has made people in His image. And they're valuable, extremely valuable to Him, their Creator. And so, human life is put on a different level than animal life. There's so much more value placed there than, than just the value placed on animals. So there's value there too. And, and unfortunately, this just has to be said. That animal life is lower than human life. There's this uh, New York Times columnist by the name of Nicholas Kristof, and this is not from a Christian worldview whatsoever, but he wrote two articles. One was about this beloved dog, his family dog, beloved dog that died after many, many years with the family. And after writing this, this column, it was met with lots of kind words, of condolences, like lots of feedback on this column, poured in. He also wrote another column, and the other column was about ending suffering in war-torn Syria. 
Now, now this is going to go, like, just set aside. I'm not trying to do, get into political views here whatsoever. And you'll see as we go along. But, but this column was, was met with a harsh and maybe even kind of loud indifference. That is, there was tons of response to the family dog dying. And, and to this article about ending suffering in war-torn Syria was met with indifference. And he wrote this about that. I wonder what would happen if Aleppo were full of golden retrievers. If we could see barrel bombs maiming helpless innocent puppies. Would we still harden our hearts and otherize the victims? Would we still say it's an Arab problem, let the Arabs solve it? Continues, yes, solutions in Syria are hard and uncertain. But I think even Katie, Katie was the family dog that died, so you can tell, like, once again, we are not coming from a Christian view here. Even Katie in her gentle wisdom would have agreed that not only do all human lives have value, but also that a human's life is worth every bit as much as a golden retriever's. Christians, we should go much, much further than that. That's that's not even far enough. Not not just that we have, what does he say, we have value and, and worth every bit as much as a golden retriever's. No, we go a lot further than that. We say we have a lot greater value than a golden retriever's life. Although they have value. And so this shows you how much care and how much value God places on all of life, especially those who bear His image. Like, the reality is, is that we shouldn't have to have, as the people of God, a sanctity of human life Sunday. There should not be a Sunday where Christians have to be reminded that all human life matters. But it does. We do have to have that reminder. And my guess is that more know the name of Harambe than know the city of Aleppo. That more have heard about Cecil the Lion than Cecile Richards, the president of Planned Parenthood. And God is showing how much He cares for, for life, and how much He values life. And, and that means that He's calling His image bearers to reflect that care in His creation. So there's a difference between how I handle books and how others, especially children, handle books. Like... Kids kind of throw books around. My kids throw them around quite a bit. And they're like bending them backwards. And I'm like, oh, don't do that. Why? Because I can't. books are important to me. Like, they're valuable. These are my counselors. These are my tools for work. It's important to me. Like, don't mistreat a book. Like, it makes me cringe. And this is why they don't touch my books. Right? Because I have so much more, they're so much more valuable to me. To them, they're just a thing. To me, they're like, they're important tools for what I do. But what I want really is, I would love for them to handle my books, but I just want the care that I have for them reflected in their lives. And this is how God thinks of us, right? He wants us to see the value and, and reflect His care for His creation in how we live. And it really is hard to overemphasize the value of bearing God's image because of who God is. He's immeasurable. His value knows no end. And so people who bear His image bear something that that is much bigger than we can even think about and talk about because we don't know the ends and the limits and the values that God has. So how much value do you place on life? How much value do you place on human life? And then in that, are we reflecting the care that God has shown in our own lives? I think that the answer isn't seen just in, in how we would 
respond to that in our heads. I, th- I think the answer is seen, especially in how we, we treat and act and even think about those who are much, much different than we are. Now that's where it comes to a head, right? That Jesus says, yeah, you can love your friends, but those enemies, those are the ones that Christians are called to love. Because that's maybe even the only time they're actually showing some, some genuine love. When it's not reciprocated, when it's not deserved, when it's not earned. That's the kind of love that God shows to us. One author said this, that the real test of every human community is how it cares for the most vulnerable. There's another test for us. Do we value life? How do we care for the most vulnerable then? And as Christians, shouldn't we be at the forefront of caring for the most vulnerable with the most care because we know how great God is and how He has cared for us and in reflecting that we go to the vulnerable and we do what we can. And the answer isn't found just in, in how we like, we don't, well, I don't murder them. I don't act violently against them. I think Jesus gives us more than that in Matthew 5. He says, You've heard that it is said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry, Everyone who's angry with this brother will be liable to judgment. I, I think it's interesting. Brother is used there. Brother was used in Genesis 9, kind of bearing us all together as this image-bearing family. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. That is, there's a heart condition toward others that would be angry and insult and, and seek to hurt and seek harm in ways that, that may not be outwardly violent or outwardly murderous, but inwardly there's a heart disposition that is wrong toward another. And Jesus calls that out as well. And as image bearers, that is not reflecting the, God, the heart that God would have toward human life. And so when we go to Matthew 5 and we think, how are we regarding human life? Are we valuing it the way God values it? Are we reflecting the care that God shows like we all fall? We fail to live up to that kind of standard. That God cares for life more than we do. That He would call us to love our enemies and and not even be angry or to to insult our brothers and not do those kind of things because that that may not be outwardly evil in our society, but inwardly our condition is wrong before God. And God cares for all of life, especially humanity. And so we fail. But He would call us to live more like Him. To bear His image. To to restore that broken image that we have destroyed with sin. God cares for humanity so much He became one. And because He values life, we see verse 7. Then, to you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply it. He said He blessed and He blesses again. He says don't eat. He says He talks about the image of God here and He says it again and multiply, bear fruit. Like all these are alluding back to creation. God is continuing something that He started with humanity in the beginning. That is a post-fall, post-sin world, post-Genesis 3 and Genesis 6 where we see all sorts of evil have not pushed God to reconsider His command that He had from the beginning. He hasn't said like, let's nuance this a little bit. Like, let's change this up. I, I kind of messed things up. Let's, let's start with a, a different version. Let's, let's do beta version here, 2.0, whatever. No, he's, he's continuing on with the command he had in the beginning. In other words, here's what's continuing on. God is still gracious. He's responding to humanity, but he hasn't responded like, you're sinful, I'm done, I'm not going to be gracious anymore. You've already pushed me to the end of my rope. No, God is still gracious and it's seen in how he's commanding and seeing how he's caring for all of humanity and all of his creation. And we have failed the test. Humanity has failed the test time and time again to reflect this sort of value on life that God shows. And we 
in reality, need a gracious God. And God's grace is clearly displayed for us. And it continues to be clearly displayed for us in what He says next to Noah. He says in verse 8, God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast on the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. And I will establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Now that's an interesting covenant. Do you remember chapter 8 verse 21 that God responds and He says, you know, I'm, I'm going to never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. <laughs> You remember what, what's in man. They're, they're evil. And it's only inclined toward evil. Away from God. This is what's going on. And it's a continued cycle since the fall. And so the appropriate response to sinful humanity was just seen in Genesis chapter 7. That's the response that God should have in His justice toward humanity in their sin. Is flood of judgment. And yet God says something very, very different here. God would be completely justified to wipe out every single generation. Like, generation comes up, they're sinful, their intentions are evil, wipe them out, start again. They're evil, wipe them out, start again. He would be completely justified in doing so. But He promises not to do that. He promised right here that He's not going to do that. Why? Because His goodness, His mercy, His grace toward humanity. Nothing prompts this. Noah's greatness and his goodness doesn't prompt this. We know where Noah's going. To to fall into sin even more. But this is just who God is. He is gracious. And so he makes a covenant, even though it's undeserved, toward his creation to to never again bring this flood of judgment. And this is, once again, behold your God. When you think about God, let this inform what you're thinking about. By his grace, instead of wiping out each generation, he makes a covenant with his creation. A, a, A promise to them. And a covenant is a binding promise, a binding commitment between parties. It's both legal and loving. And we think about this in marriage. You're making a marriage covenant. That is both a legal thing, you are legally married, but it's also a loving thing. It's not just something like, I guess we're going to have to do this and get the legal process. No, it's it's a loving commitment. It's a loving promise that you make to one another. And this is the same kind of covenant that God's making here. A legal and loving covenant. And at the heart of covenant which is a key word through the Scripture, at the heart of covenant is relationship. That God desires relationship with humanity. He's not just legally binding something. He loves. And so He makes a commitment. So God is promising something in relation to man. And so this covenant has has got several kind of things that describe it. It's unilateral. That is to say that God's taking full responsibility for this covenant. This is my and I. You see that all through the text. This is my covenant I make to you. I'm doing this. It's one-sided in a sense. God is binding Himself to this no matter what man does. In fact, in spite of what man does, God is binding Himself to this. That is, that is the sense that it is unilateral. It is from God. He is taking full responsibility for it. It's universal. It doesn't matter who you are, where you've come from. This is a universal. This is for all people, all creatures. While the earth remains, God is saying, this is how it's going to be. This is for all. It's universal. It's unending. 
In the end, we're going to see that this is called an everlasting covenant. That is, there's no more flood. We, we looked at the, the passage that talks about, in the end, there'll be, there'll be fire, but until that time, the earth will remain. Seed time and harvest, God will not bring a flood of judgment, even though man deserves it. And so this is still a covenant that is in effect for us today. There's, there's nothing that has described that this covenant has ended any sort of way whatsoever. So it's unilateral, it's universal, it's unending, and it's unconditional. That is, it's completely undeserved. No one has earned it. No one has worked their way to get there. No one hasn't been good enough and righteous enough in order to get God's loving and legal relationship with Him. And it's unchanged based on man's action. That is, God is doing this, and it's not conditioned upon what man does or doesn't do, or how they respond. So it's universal, it's unilateral, it's unending, and it's unconditional. Now, when we think about covenants in our day, a lot of times our mind goes right to marriage. And I think that's a good example. But the problem with that example is that those are broken all the time. And so when we think about covenants, I don't know about you and where your, your background and your home, but like covenant may not be a strong word for you. They're broken, they're messed up, they're done against. And so we need to remind ourselves that, that this is a different kind of covenant because we're talking about God doing this. And who is God? The one who at 8-1, He remembered. He remembered Noah. He was faithful to His word. He's always faithful to His promises. Always faithful to fulfill His word. And so when He makes a unilateral, universal, unending, unconditional covenant with humanity, God is faithful. Even us here are a reminder of this. That we're breathing and we haven't been swept by a flood. God is faithful to this. Now here's something we should know about ourselves and about all of humanity when we think about God's gracious covenant toward us. is that we're not naturally inclined to think of God this way. We are not inclined to think of God as a gracious God. To think of Him as this God who would be kind enough to have this legal and loving, binding relationship with us. In fact, Romans says that all have exchanged the truth about God for a lie. A lie that was there in Eden. A lie that continues on us today. A lie that would tell us that God is holding out on you. He can't be gracious. See that tree? It's, It's beautiful, isn't it? It looks like it has good fruit. If God were loving, if He were gracious, if He were good, He would let you have that tree. He knows you're going to be like Him. Surely a good God would let you do that, but He can't be good. And so we've exchanged the truth about God for a lie. We've thought of God as not generous, not gracious, not good. And it's been continued on since Eden to us today. And this is a lie that distorts not just our own thinking, but who God is. Is and his character. It's distorting his gracious character. But what do we learn from this passage? What do we learn from this covenant that he makes with humanity? That God is gracious. Better yet, what do we learn from the breath that's in our lungs right now? That they're not filled with water of judgment. That God is gracious to us. That God cares about us. That he's more gracious than we know. See, this covenant is a big deal. Because when we look around us, there's chaos that seems to seek the destruction of all humanity at all times. You thought about that? Like, look at the world. It seems like chaos is going to destroy this earth, destroy the people in it. Like, in other words, like there's a flood that would engulf us, but yet things continue. Things continually threaten, and yet God stays faithful. He said He's going to sustain it until the end, and He's going to sustain it to the end. And so what this covenant does is provide the framework for us. It sets the stage, in other words, for God to work. Right here with Noah, He sets the stage for his how He's going to be working out His plan with creation. How He's going to be working out His plan with humanity more specifically. This sets the stage, provides the context 
for a fallen world, but sustained, for which Jesus will come. Set for us here. That He says that, I'm not sending a flood again. That's not how it's going to happen. And the world's going to be sustained. And what He's doing, we are after Christ, but God is setting the stage for Jesus to come in a fallen yet sustained world. It provides the context that we are currently in, that Jesus came to rescue us from. The earth and human life are going to be sustained until the fire. And until that fire comes, God has given us a, a covenant. And He's even sealed it with a sign. If you look in verse 12, this is the part that all of you were probably looking forward to. Bring the rainbows in. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And when I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, and I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. And when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. That is, in marriage we have rings that are an outward and physical display of of the covenant that we have entered into. And God has signs for His covenants as well. With Abraham we have the sign of circumcision. With the new covenant we have the sign of baptism. And here we have the sign, this certification of the rainbow. And I think rainbow is the right way to take that. That is what is being spoken of. It is a visible reminder that God's promise remains. And it is with us today. We see it in the clouds. We see it after the rain. That God has visibly given us a sign of this covenant that He made here in Genesis chapter 9. Which is an amazing thought. Genesis 9 covenant made thousands of years ago visible to us today. A reminder of God's grace. Now, when, in reading this, the ESV translate that word that I'm, I'm calling it a sign, the sign of the rainbow. It says bow. And I think that that is exactly how it is read in the Scripture, that it, it really is a bow. Now, when we're saying bow, surely what is pictured is the rainbow, but literally the word is bow. And so it's the same word that would be used for archers. And they're, they're a bow that they would carry and shoot arrows out of. In other words, what is pictured is a weapon. This is a sign of of God's weapon. So one author said that the bow is a weapon of war, an emblem of wrath, that God will now set in the heavens as a token of what? Of grace. This picture is incredible, that God is setting His bow in the clouds. He is laying down His weapon of war. He, He brought the flood and He says, I'm putting that weapon down. It's not that humanity has deserved it, but He is gracious. And in His grace, He lays down and and shows us that He's laying down this weapon. He shows us this rainbow as a token of His grace. And so there's all sorts of imagery that's displayed in the rainbow. It it spans horizons, reminding us that it's it's universal. It stretches between earth and sky. It's It's a sign of peace between heaven and earth. Some push this even further. If you read the Jesus Storybook Bible, it says that it is pointed up into heaven into the heart of God. I think that's pushing too far. But maybe, right? They might be right. And it's a wonderful and beautiful picture that God has put it for us. But what we know is that this is a token of the grace of God. That He will not do certain things and will do certain things based on His Word and His character. So whatever is said about this bow, here's what we know. That this bow doesn't signify that judgment is no longer needed. 
It's not a sign that you're good, keep going, doing life the way you want. It's not what it's communicating. What it is communicating is that there is a token of God's grace. He has promised something. He will stay faithful to this Word. It's a sign of His gracious covenant. And when God sees it, it says He will remember His covenant. That is the same kind of remembering that He did in 8.1 when He remembered Noah. He will remember in order to save. He doesn't need reminders. But it stands between us and God as a visible sign that God will be faithful to His Word and faithful to His promises over and over and over again. Why this covenant? Why this sign? Because this is who God is. God is gracious. And He is graciously providing this covenant. So our lives and our views of God and His grace must not just be conformed to to what we think and informed and instructed by what we see or hear, how our culture develops these things. We need to let these things be informed by, by this gracious covenant, by how God displays His character in making a covenant with humanity, with His gracious care over all creation when He's renewed everything. It's like, this is your chance to start again. What are you going to do? He's going to stay faithful. He's going to value life. He's promising certain things to His creation, to humanity. That is, God has made covenants, promises that are both legal and loving toward all of His creation to do certain things because this is who He is. But when we think about God, we shouldn't just be informed of His character by this covenant. But we get to see another covenant that God has made. On this side of the cross and the resurrection, we get to see what God calls the new covenant. A covenant that, that is sealed by blood, life. Not human life, God's own life. Perfect God-man, Jesus Christ. This is a covenant that's based on the body and blood of Jesus. Body that was broken, blood that was poured out. The covenant of forgiveness of sins for all who would turn and trust in this Jesus. And so the question remains, when we look at that, when we see this covenant made with creation that still stands today, when we see the new covenant that Christ has made by His own body and His own blood, not dependent on man's work, but just trust, depending on, on His own finished work. What comes into your mind when you think about God? How biblically informed is that thought? Or are those thoughts? And God has revealed Himself through this rainbow and this covenant and in His care. Through Jesus Christ and this covenant through His body and His blood as the God who is very gracious. And so whatever comes into your mind when you think about God, I want at least for us to know today that God is gracious. And if we were just to know that, I would be pleased. But God doesn't just want us to know who He is. He wants us to respond as creatures rightly. How do you respond to a gracious God? And I think our response as creatures bearing His image should be to draw near. That is, His covenant, His blessing are all made around this one word I use several times. That these are relational terms. That God, in His grace, wants relationship with humanity, wants relationship with us. This is why we are still breathing even now. That God is gracious, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to the knowledge of the truth. 
to know His grace and how He's extended out to every one of us His grace that we might draw near to Him and have relationship with Him. That is, our response should be to draw near to Him, to seek relationship with Him. And when we do that, then all of a sudden, sanctity of human life Sunday becomes a second nature thing. Because we recognize that we are undeserving, not only to bear the image of God, but to be in relationship with Him. We've seen His love, His grace, and we want that to be poured out to others as well. What you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. It will drive how you live your life. And so, have you drawn near? Have you ever sought relationship with God? If not, our encouragement and our call to response to you this morning is to do that. To turn from your wayward life that would seek to be your own God and do your own thing to a God who created you, that knows how you work, that designed you to worship and be satisfied by Him. And if you have, if you're a believer, if you're in Christ, are you drawing near? And this is where it gets tough because there's often times when we can say that we're not. We're not drawing near to this God. We're not seeking relationship with Him. That it doesn't seem satisfying. We struggle with with desiring fellowship with this God. We struggle desiring knowing this God. We struggle desiring to live life with His people and even to want to live life with His people. And here's the reminder that we need. God is gracious still. And He still says, come. Again. Come again. Now let's pray to this gracious God. I want to give you guys just a few minutes to just reflect. On that very question, what comes to your mind when you think about God? When good things of His character that you've seen this morning come to mind, praise Him for them. But also reflect on on where you're not drawing near. Father God, You are good and gracious. And Your grace and Your kindness and Your goodness are meant to lead us toward repentance. I pray for those who have never turned from their sins and trusted in You. That they'd stop running away. And would instead see Your grace and run towards You. And they'd be comforted by You, this great and gracious God. Father, I pray for those who are in Christ. Like me, who struggle to draw near at times. Who struggle even to have those desires to draw near at times. That we would be reminded of your grace still. And that we would even now draw near. Seeking relationship with you that you have so richly provided for us in Christ. God, turn our hearts and our affections toward You. May we adore You and worship You. Thank You for the covenant You've made with creation and grace that You've displayed in it. But also, God, to draw near. God, we love You. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for who You are. 
May we live into your glory. Amen.